Will you go with me to the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew? We're going to be in chapter 18 this morning. And if you've seen that video before, it is so good, we had to show it again. And it sets up perfectly our sermon this morning. So will you go with me to this scripture? You're welcome to read it on the screen. Close your eyes, let it wash over you. Follow in your own Bible. However you want to engage with this text, I invite you to do so. Hear the word of the Lord. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children all be all had to be sold into slavery to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I, pay, and I will pay everything back. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. They went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master had called his servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. This is how my heavenly Father will teach you. Each of you uh, um, will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or your sister from your heart. This is the word of God for the people of God, and together we say, "Thanks be to God." We are in the third week of our series called Connections. The ways in which we are connected to so many different things in our life that we often don't recognize. Our first week, the ways in which we're connected to God. Last week, the ways in which we're connected to our own selves. Today, I would like for us to talk about the ways in which we're connected to people we might not ever meet. The ways in which we're connected to people all over the world. The ways in which we're connected to people in our own daily life who are not our family and our friends, but that transcend our ability to recognize on our own. I thought of a number of different ways I wanted to take this sermon. It took me a while to figure out, like, what direction am I going to go? Because I can be real guilty of trying to go too many directions and, like, end in some, like, three different places and none of it makes sense. So I was like, all right. I really wanted to think about how, like, we're connected uh, through, through ways of experience beyond our five senses. And the best example of that is, have you ever been in an elevator with a couple that was arguing? And, like, it was them and you? <laughs> and that was it? And you're going up a bunch of stories and they're arguing, they're yelling, they're yelling, and then they just, they just stop and it's just silent. And you feel like there's something in your, this thing inside of you, like this feels really awkward. We call it tension. You can't experience tension with your taste, touch, sight, smell, feel. T- tension is not experienced through our five senses, yet there's some sort of connection we have to those other individuals that transcends our normal ways of being. But I decided that's a good thing to think about. We are connected in that way, but, but maybe another direction would be about how we're like connected on like this like micro level. How, you know, uh, Ecclesiastes, when he says there's nothing new under the sun, 
He didn't know he was channeling the first law of thermodynamics that says mass can neither be created nor destroyed. So everything that is has always been. If you think about it, all of the particles, all the things that God created originally are still here today, just transferred in different ways. So we all come from this common energy from dust. You have come to dust. You will return. So there's a connection through creation. But I'm not smart enough to try to do that for the whole sermon. So instead, I want to talk about something very basic to the tenets of Christianity. I want to talk about the practice of evangelism, which in its most cliche versions nowadays often gets a bad rap and not for any wrong reason. I think today's scripture is perfect place from which we can talk about this topic of evangelism with a new sense, with a new way of understanding Typically, when we talk about evangelism, we go to the book of Acts about how they went out and started all these churches. Or Matthew, it says later in Matthew when he says, go and make disciples of all the nations. But I think in this text this morning about this unmerciful servant, we're given a much better picture of what it means for all of us to be evangelists. So will you pray with me as we jump in? God, we thank you for your word. May it always be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. May the words of my mouth and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Do you ever think about how crazy life can be sometimes in its happenstance nature? About how serendipitous each day has the potential to be? I've said a lot lately that it's hard for me to understand how God brings into being all the different situations that God does while still allowing for free will. Like as Methodists, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. We do believe in free will and human choice. Yet when certain things just kind of like align perfectly, you're like, I don't know how God is redeeming this or using this or creating this circumstance, but I know God's at work and I know I have free choice. And that's just happened to me a lot lately where I think about how my life in this particular moment got to where it is because of so many circumstantial experiences, so many things that, that, were just kind of beyond my own self, my own plan, that I know that God was at work, yet I also know God was allowing me to choose. So much of our lives are like that, right? We are in this moment because of so many different things that have happened. How did you get to this place? Like here's just one example of millions of examples. I'm here as your pastor because the bishop appointed me here. But he thought I would be a good fit here because I had relationships with Brad and some of our other previous pastors. I had that relationship with Brad because I worked at St. James with Brad for a number of years. We were able to work together because one, I went to Huntington, so I was in Montgomery. And two, another pastor at St. James had heard about me from another youth pastor in our conference that heard me play at a concert in Panama City in 2011, which I was only at because my youth pastor, who also went to Huntington, convinced me to go work there during the summers because when she was in college back in the 80s, somebody invited her to be in a band back in the 80s that also played in Panama City during the summers. So essentially, I'm here today because somebody in the 80s invited somebody else to be in a band. (laughs) There's so many uh, tracks like that in our life, is there not? I mean, I could tell you that I'm here today because my parents both decided to be Methodist, and so I was raised Methodist. I could also tell you, so I'm playing with this. We got a new microphone, and it keeps coming off my ear. I'm sorry. I, I could tell you that I'm here because I went to Emory instead of Duke because I fell in love with this beautiful girl and so I wanted to be closer to her and so then I stayed in the southeast and now I'm here. All of us can identify tracks in our life that got us to this point today. How did you get here? And I think one of the most fascinating things about that reality is that there are so many moments, so many points along that path that led you to this place today that had absolutely nothing to do with you. 
A decision somebody else made to do something inadvertently made it so that you got to be here to this point today. But yet we still do believe in human freedom. We believe in our own ability to make decisions. But what that means is our decisions have a deep impact on other people beyond our own ability. That guy back in the 80s that invited Leanne to be in that band, he didn't think one day this will make it so that Woods can go be the pastor at Dauphinway. How many things in your life seem very happenstance or circumstantial but were an impact at getting you here today? Because that's kind of what I want us to talk about this morning. I think this is one of the deepest ways we are connected as humanity. We are connected to people beyond our own sphere of regular engagement that we might not ever know. And it could be for good, and it could be for bad. The decisions we make have consequences. The consequences of those decisions can be kingdom building, or they can be less than optimal. That is the reality of our text this morning as well. As we look at this unmerciful servant from Matthew's 18th chapter, Peter's asking, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or my sister who sins against me? Should I forgive them seven times? And in actuality, he's not necessarily asking seven as a specific number, but seven in the Israelite Jewish faith is this perfect number, this kind of holistic, holy number. And so he says, do I always have to forgive somebody who wrongs me? Do I always have to practice that? And Jesus says, not seven times, 77 times, or some translations say seven times seven. It depends on how you translate the Greek. And so there's this idea Jesus is saying is that forgiveness is part of the Christian experience. It's part of being most like God, learning to live into that. And as we talked about before about forgiveness, forgiveness is not easy. It's not immediate. It takes a long time. Sometimes it seems like we will never get there. But that is kind of what Jesus, that's what Jesus is conveying and Jesus goes on in this most like Jesus-y way possible to just like, we're having a conversation and then story time, Jesus story time, where he tells this parable. He says, the kingdom of God is like this king who wanted to settle all the accounts with his servants. And then this one servant came to the master and the text says, in the, new, the NRSV, it says he owed 10,000 talents. And this is kind of an outrageous number. Because in this parable, Jesus is telling us a story, it's a hypothetical story, so Jesus kind of gets to say, you know, what the details are. And so for a servant, a daily wage is one denarius. A talent is equal to 15 years worth of daily wages. And so Jesus is trying to say, this guy owed 10,000 talents, which would be 150,000 years worth of daily wages. That's almost $55 million dollars. That's more money than the king of Israel would collect in taxes over a 12-year period. Jesus is saying this guy owed so much money that there was no way he was going to ever be able to repay it. And so the king ordered he and his wife and his children to be thrown into slavery. And the servant said, Master, please don't. I'll promise I'll pay it back. And he begged him. And the master took pity on him and said, you know what? You don't even have to repay it. I just forgive your debt. You owe me millions of dollars, MBD? No worries. Forget about it. Forget about it. You're done. Just forget about the debt. And he was so grateful, he was so gracious, and he left. And he, it says he immediately went and found another servant who was basically, you know, their friends, another fellow servant. He says, hey, you owe me 100 denaries. You owe me basically 100 bucks compared to $55 million. And the guy said, I don't have it, I'm sorry, I can't pay you back right now, but if you'll be patient with me, I promise I'll get it to you. 
And he said, no, I'm not gonna be patient with you. You owe me money. And so he had him thrown into jail to pay for, until he could pay off his debts. And so his friends, they all saw this happening. And they're like, oh my goodness, how could you do this? Like, he just forgave you, but you're not gonna forgive him. So they went and they told the master. They said, master, guess what this guy just did? You showed him mercy and he did not show any mercy. Why is that the case? And so then he brought in the servant back into the master's chambers and the master said, you are a wicked servant. And then he threw him into jail and Jesus ends by saying, all right, now you go and do likewise. Just ends the story, just like that. Typical Jesus fashion. What I love about the Bible is it is the living word of God. And so when you read it on one day, it might say something completely different to you than on another day. So reading it in the fall of 2018 means something different for my life than when I read it in the fall of 2017. And this is actually the first time since I've been here that I've preached from the same passage more than once. I'm sure it will happen again because we're always going through living word situations together. But I thought about this sermon, I thought about this series, and I just really felt drawn to this scripture text. And I was like, well, I preached on it last year, but this is a completely different thing. And isn't that cool how the Bible works, how you and I could all read the same scripture and be inspired by God in different ways. We come together to affirm that inspiration to affirm that reading. And so this text does have a lot to say about the nature of forgiveness and about how extravagant God's forgiveness is for us and how God came and did call us to forgive others. And we discussed that nature of it last fall, but, but I think what I'd like to say about this scripture this morning is com- something kind of completely different. It's just in a very different direction. Because I think this text actually gives us a broader understanding of what it means to follow Christ, of what it means to be living as Christians in the world. In my mind, this story is compelling us not only to consider the nature of forgiveness, but how we live our lives when we're not at church, how we live our lives when we're not with our small group. How do we live our lives when our pastor is not around? And I'm not just talking about following perceived cultural standards of morality. I'm not just saying, well, your peers think that this is the proper way to behave. This is the way in which the society says we have to act. But how are we truly living out what it means to be a Christ follower? We in this room, if you're a member of this church, if you're professing as a Christian, you have agreed to be a part of this covenant of Christ-likeness together. So how are we doing that regularly beyond the four walls of this building or where we're never, we're not with our accountability partners in our small groups and Sunday schools? A few weeks ago, I brought to our vision team demographic studies from around Midtown, Oakley, Spring Hill, and Westmobile. As we're going through discerning the vision God has for our church, we're looking at different specific things about our community. And there's lots of surprising information in this data, but some of the most disheartening to me were the stats regarding church participation in Mobile. Did you know that only 35% of people who claim to be Christians in our town actually are active in a church? They profess that they're actively going to church. In the South, you think everybody goes to church. It's the South, we all go to church. But only 35% of Mobile Christians are actively going to church. The survey asked whether or not a participant was a member of a faith-based community, if so, to which they belonged, and if they were actively participating in their faith. 63% of Mobile claims to be Christian, but only 35% of those who claim to be Christian say they want to be active in a local congregation. And you know the top reasons people said for why they don't participate in church? The number one thing they said was that we're too judgmental. The number two thing they said is we talk too much about money. There's a book written by Gabe Lyons a couple years ago in 2012. 
he and Dan, David Kinneman, they, they wrote a book called Unchristian. And in it, they asked all young Christians around the world, what is the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Christians? And this wasn't like, what are the bad things about Christians? Or what would you change about the church? It was, the, what is the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Christians? Number one thing, we're hypocritical. Number two thing, we are insincere and only concerned with converting people. So friends, if you were in this room, first off, you are in the minority of Mobilians. Even if you didn't realize it, you saw everybody goes to church on Sunday. It's what we do. It's what we're supposed to do. Of the 193,000 people who live in the city of Mobile, 122,000 profess that they are following Christ, yet only 45,432 want anything to do with the church. Only 24% of the people in our city want to be here, want to do this, want to spend an hour on their Sunday morning going to worship, be in small groups, do these things. And to be honest, when I think about the way in which I, at times, reflect the name of Christ in the world, when I think about the way you and I treat others in our workplaces, when I think about the ways in which we talk about our fellow human beings who look different than us, the way we relate to people of different socioeconomic status, the way in which we make remarks about people of other religions, if I wasn't a Christian, but I watched the behavior of the 45,000 people who claim to go to church, I don't know that I would ever want to go to church either. That's not to say that we're always all bad. But how often do we reflect on our day and think, man, I really was the image of Christ today. I treated everybody with humility. I offered love to all those people I came in contact with. I did not speak ill about anybody in this world. I was kind to all. Richard Rohr says that uh, by and large, from his experience, Christians aren't actually more loving than other religious groups. They just think they are. And it's often the product of believing in a God based on fear. We talked about that about two weeks ago, that sometimes we relate to God out of fear. The ramifications of having a relationship with God just based on fear is that we then consider judgment the ultimate way in which we understand divine. So then we reflect that. We judge others. If our relationship with God is based on fear because of decisions and morality, then the way in which we relate to others is all based on morality and judgment and fear. Am I better than them? Have I made it to heaven? Am I gonna make it to heaven? Are they gonna make it? It's just kind of ironic that one of Christianity's most iconic songs goes like this. We are one in the spirit, we are one in the Lord, and we pray that all unity will one day be restored, and they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love, and they'll know we are Christians by our love. We will walk with each other, we will walk hand in hand, And together we'll spread the news that God is in our land. They will know we are Christians by our love, by our love. They will know we are Christians by our love. But when asked to non-Christians all over our country and even in our own city, do you know us by our love? Like, no. We know you by everything but that. We know you as hypocrites, as judgment, as insincere. Like love is the last thing we think of when we think of Christians. As I think about this reality, I think we often like to say, well, that's not us. That's not Dauphin Way. I mean, if they that might be ex-church down the street who may remain remain nameless. That might be Christian group over in Texas that remains nameless. That might be those Christians. That's not us though. We're we are the loving ones. You know what, Woods? You need to go preach this sermon at this church over here, all right? 
Can, you, can we do that? Can we package this thing up and just like send you over there so you can tell those non-loving people that they need to be more loving? But how often do we actually stop and reflect? Are we actually being the church we proclaim to be? Are we actually being the people that we're in covenant to be? We often go through blaming others and are completely unaware that we ourselves are contributing to this hurtful representation of what it means to be a Christian. Not necessarily always by our words, but by our actions. And our actions have consequences. As I think back about this text, it seems at first that the unmerciful servant's behavior would just affect himself, right? He's being unmerciful and so he sealed his own fate. His unforgiveness came back to bite him. But his decisions affected so many more beyond himself. He was no longer around to parent his children to what happened to them. He couldn't be a husband to his wife. What did his lack of mercy say about the local synagogue to which he belonged? What if he was a a small group leader who was teaching everyone to be the best Jew and you could, to be this, you gotta worship God and then he refused to show mercy? What does it say about the Israelite people if he is their representation? Likewise, the parable never said whether his lack of mercy was ever rectified, if that man was ever taken out of prison. His actions affected somebody else's life because of his lack of mercy. It never said if the one who experienced this witness from the far, his friends who saw him act this way, what did it do to them and their willingness to participate in whatever it is that their life circumstances had? His behavior had far-reaching consequences beyond himself, just as our decisions and our behavior has far-reaching consequences beyond ourselves. The reality is that we are connected to people because of the things we say and the things we do. And are we thankful for that? Are we glad for that? Are we excited about that? Can we say, you know what? We know that the things we're doing are helping others around the world And as I land this plane this morning, you might think, Woods, you said your sermon was about evangelism. You haven't talked about evangelism at all. And you'd be right. In the classic sense, or in our traditional view of evangelism, I have not talked about that. Because for most of us, when we think of evangelism, we think of a form of proselytizing. That somebody goes out to tell somebody else about Jesus so that they can join the Christian movement. And most importantly, so that they can go to heaven. To us, that's kind of what the the stereotypical understanding of evangelism is. It's a conviction that we need to go out and save as many people as we can so that they don't end up in hell. It's up to us to make sure these people don't go to hell. So we need to go evangelize. That's not exactly how I understand evangelism. For one, it is not up to me to save people's soul because I'm not God. God is the one who does the saving. So when you hear somebody or some church profess hey, we, got, we saved this many souls today, or I saved this person's soul. Like, no, you didn't. God did that through Jesus a long time ago, like 2,000 years. You're way behind, buddy. You missed it. It is our duty to let people know about the salvation that God is offering us, the work of the cross for us, that we can choose to live into that. The other thing that this classic form of evangelism and me have a rub with is that I will never know who's going to heaven and who's not. Because that's not up to me to know. The Bible speaks of, and our tradition speaks of assurance for our own selves, 
that we can be assured of our relationship with God and so we can be assured of our eternal experience and what's gonna happen. But I can never tell you, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell. This, your eternity rests here because I see the decisions you're making because that's not up for me to know. I don't get that knowledge and neither do you. So for us to presume, we can say, well, this group is going to heaven and this group's not. It's assuming that we are God. And I, guess, I got some news for you, friends. I say it all the time. God is God and we are not. So you don't get to make that decision. But I still believe in evangelism. I still believe in this idea of being evangelical. And here's why. Because I have had an amazing experience with God. I have experienced the love of Christ in my own life that has transformed it. I have been a part of a community of believers here in Mobile, Alabama that makes me feel loved and welcomed and supported. I have felt overwhelmed by by your graciousness, by your hospitality, by your invitation for me to be a part of your family, the way you invited me into your homes, out to meals, you've cared for my family. And I want everyone to know that they too have a place to belong, that they too are loved, that God has so much grace for them that it is unending, and that we as a church are not here just to tell them what to do or about how bad of a person they are, but to let them know that they are loved. And so evangelism is this to me. There's a phrase somebody wants to use and we don't even know who to attribute it to. Some people say Francis of Assisi, others say John Wesley. But preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Let your life be your evangelism. Let the way that you live in and amongst your friends and your coworkers connect you to them for eternity through the decisions you make that positively impact their life. When you leave here, are you representing everybody else in this room the way that you would be proud of? When you leave here, are you making decisions that are affirming and building up of the kingdom? Can we say we are known by our love? Are we just okay to say, yeah, my life is my own. I'm gonna live it the way I want. I pray not because you join this group with this covenant that says together we will support one another. We will raise each other's kids together. We will spread the gospel by our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our witness and our service. Let us honor that covenant by being the people God's called us to be because it has eternal impact. The consequences are far more reaching than we may ever know. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you that you connect us to each other. We thank you for the experience of family and community that we get to have. I ask that you help us, you compel us to live a life worthy of the calling to which you have given us. Let us be a people who spread love and grace, not hate and judgment and condemnation. Let us welcome people with open arms as opposed to turning people away because they're different. We thank you that in this church, in this place, we have a family, that we have a place to belong. So Holy Spirit, let us eternally be growing closer to one another as we fall deeper in love with you. It's the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we pray. Amen.